0: In this podcast, my co host Brandon Edgens and I strive to bring you stories and interviews not about the great works that enjoy the bright light of day, but about the hidden source that fuels their creation, that fuels everything. Welcome to the well. Last winter, my co-host, Brandon and I received a call from a friend of ours. She told us that she'd met someone at a holiday party, a guy named Todd Komornicki, and she thought he'd make a great guest on the show. And when she told us what Todd is known for, we knew we had to have him on the show. Or at least, we knew we had to use Todd to give a big Christmas surprise to my wife, Dara. The reason why, you'll find out in a moment. It's hey, Todd. Great to meet you. Todd, nice to meet you too, handsome. Todd's a big guy, bushy beard and a meaty handshake. And he has these, what, what I can only describe as bright, clear eyes. When you first meet him, you can just tell that he's ready to share. Nothing to hide.
1: So pretty.
0: Oh, and dancing around his feet was this vibrant little girl named Remy. Come on. Remy is Todd's daughter, and as you can tell, she is no blushing flower. You may hear her in the background playing with our dogs before she eventually gets wrapped up in the story. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> so you're gonna perf- you're gonna perform this part of the interview. Now, yeah, no, you did not tell me. <laughs> and so all my wife knew was that a new WellPod guest was coming over. But after I poured us all a round of bourbons, I sat Dara down at the table with us and pushed the microphone over to her.
1: I did not consent to this. (laughs) This is marriage.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is for better or for worse. This is the worst part. Crap. I'd just conveniently forgotten that my wife hates to be recorded. Sorry, honey. So Todd has done something in his area of work Mm-hmm. that has profoundly affected your life.
2: That has profoundly affected my life?
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. What? And we're not going to tell you what it is. What? And we're going to play 20 questions.
2: But wait, um, I'm asking him yes or no questions? Or like... Yeah. Th- th- you have, he only can respond with yes or no? Yeah. Okay. Um, first question... Are you in the field of photography?
1: I am not. Uh, hmm. It's like a game show from the 50s, it's very exciting. Even I don't know who I am. 20 questions. (laughs) Now I'm like going through my head like who the most influential people in my life are.
2: Sorry. Um.
1: That heavy breathing is the dog, it's not Brandon. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, it's me because I'm so nervous.
1: He's looking at you with such love. Just draw on him from inspiration, your husband. Look into his eyes, those Tennessee eyes. Sanitation. <laughs> I'm not one of the questioners.
2: <laughs> Are you an artist?
1: What I do, yeah, I would say I'm an artist, but You're I'm not artist. a fine artist. I, I work in one of the arts. No, there's too many people looking at me. (laughs) Like I'm sweating. What's happening? Can you think of a question I can ask your father? Are you allergic to banjos? (laughs) That's a good line. Uh, I'm not allergic to banjos. That's a great, great question. It's It's not apropos, but... Are you impacted with movies? Yes, I'm involved in the movies, yes. Um, are you a filmmaker? I am.
2: You're a filmmaker. Do you work behind the scenes or are you in front of... I'm a, wri- we, I'm a writer and a producer. Writer and producer. Do you write and produce um, romantic comedies? Romantic?
1: Take out the romantic part. Comedies.
2: comedies. Produce, produce comedies. You produce comedies. Yeah. Okay. My favorite comedies... Um, would have to be
0: Elf.
1: That is correct.
2: Elf. Oh my God.
1: <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'm glad, I'm glad. you got Wait, it on the first one. Who
2: was counting the question? <laughs> oh, you win.
1: You, you win. win. Once you, you, you got uh, to comedies and you said, I win.
2: I win. Yay! I'm like, <laughs> oh gosh, filmmaking. Like, I really don't know films. The only film I know is Elf. That's
1: the only <laughs> film. That's the only film you need to know. Oh my what?
2: goodness. That's
0: Ah, I love my wife. <laughs> anyway, as you've just heard Dara cleverly deduce, Todd is a screenwriter and a producer. You've probably seen some of his movies. He wrote the Tom Hanks film Sully, among others. But more pertinent to the holidays, we were really hoping last year to interview Todd for a Christmas episode because of his involvement in making one of the seminal Christmas movies of all time, Elf, directed by Jon Favreau and starring Will Ferrell. It's one of Warner Brothers' biggest post-release earners, and this November, funny enough, was the 15th year anniversary of its release. It's about a human who grows up in the North Pole, thinking he's an elf, but then it turns out, yeah, he's a human. Hijinks ensue. Farrell is amazing. He never cracks, plays it totally straight, and it's side-bustingly funny. But then, surprisingly, the movie manages a real depth that you don't get from a lot of movies, even Christmas movies.
1: I think the reason it's lasted is because it's singular, not because it's a brilliant film, but it's singular because no other films have that message. Almost every comedy in the last 30 years has been a comedy of humiliation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's always laughing at the expense of, it's never laughing along with, or getting caught up in the magic. Mm-hmm. And so the purity at the heart of the movie is, that's why I think it's, it still sticks around. Because we hunger for that. We hunger to be seen, loved, appreciated. Yeah. The people want experiences. They don't want stuff. And the whole story of the family being redeemed is all about relationship. And what's the thing that makes the sleigh fly? And this is where a lot of people cry. The thing that makes the sleigh fly is the little boy saying to James Con, you're mouthing the words. Mm-hmm. You're pretending to have faith. You're pretending to believe. Mm-hmm. And then when he really does it and he sings out with all his voice, the sleigh takes off. And if you look at it, I mean, it's an effect, but it's cool. If it doesn't, essentially, if he doesn't sing right then, they're all getting clobbered by Santa. It's coming right for him. So that that notion that you can, through your own faith, find something that elevates not just you, but your whole community and heals your family is definitely shared with my faith.
0: Okay. When Elf came out, I saw that, well, first of all, I saw that you've done a few interviews for Christian publications. In the if, if if this question is too personal let me know uh, but I read that in one of these interviews you described your coming to faith as spectacular and that begs the the, the question from me that or at least the assumption for me that that sounds like there's a story behind that
1: oh yeah I mean I was spectacularly saved but that's definitely not a story I can tell in front of my eight-year-old totally cool but yeah I'm happy to share it but what? <laughs> <laughs> now her ears are like, what it's a story I can tell you when you're a teenager, Remy. And I will tell you every single bit of it, but it's it's too soon. Some things are too soon.
0: Now, as I've already said, that was last year, and we'd really wanted to air this as our Christmas episode at that time, but we knew we weren't done with Todd's interview. We knew there was a story there and that it somehow connected Todd's faith with Todd's work. And this being a podcast about creativity. We had to hear it. So we waited. A whole year. Hey there, WellPod listeners. As an actor, I make it a practice to never read my reviews during the run of a play. But as a podcast producer, I consume them like the Cookie Monster. That's because the more reviews we get on iTunes or Stitcher, the more visible our podcast becomes, and we want to bring as many people around our campfire as possible. If you like our show, do us a favor and give us a review. This can be as easy as hitting five stars and getting on with your day, but we also love to hear your thoughts. So please, take just a small moment of your time, go to iTunes or Stitcher or both, and review The Well podcast. Oh, and it seems we chose a popular name because there are several other podcasts called The Well. So if you're searching for us, just type in my name, Anson Mount, and you'll find us. Thanks in advance. Now back to the show. And so it was this holiday season that Dara and I met up with Brandon down in the Tribeca neighborhood of Lower Manhattan. And down there on the corner of Moore and Verrick Streets, there's an unsuspecting little bar restaurant called Walker's. It has one of those old entrances, the kind that looks like they lopped off the corner of the first floor and filled it in with an old door with brass fixtures. Inside it's a typical low-key neighborhood joint, with that old shoulder-height wood slat paneling and a pounded tin ceiling. The people chatting at the bar seem to know each other, even though some are separated by several stools, and you just get this immediate sense that the conversation is as warm as the mashed potatoes and gravy that come wafting in from the kitchen. It's a nice place. Cozy on a rainy winter night. Walker's is where Todd suggested that we all meet up with him again. Todd's been coming to Walkers a long time and quite often works from a table in the back room. I don't
1: know if you asked, but I'm happy to answer. Um, well, there's two things. The name of my company is Guy Walks Walkers' World Bar. Mm-hmm. And I named it that because there are only two places on planet Earth where you can walk into a dark room mm-hmm. and have a stranger tell you their life story. Mm-hmm. And that's the cinema and a bar. Mm-hmm. So. I I love that if I wanna look up from what I'm working on Mm -hmm. and I wanna engage in someone's life story, it's right there. Mm -hmm. And people are hungry to tell you, and they don't have to be inebriated. This is like church. Mm -hmm. Uh, They could just be happy to talk. Some guy will tell you his life story via his disappointment in the Houston Astros. But you can get to it if you want to. And if you wanna just talk about the Astros, Mm -hmm. that's fine too. So that availability of, of human experience, and the world slows down in a bar. You, you're shoulder to shoulder with the stranger, and everybody, especially in a place like Walker's, is not maybe not eager to communicate, but open mm-hmm. to communicating. And the amount of people that wanna to talk to me without knowing me, if I'm, if I'm writing, there tends to be a general interest in what are you doing? What are you working on? Mm-hmm. And because I've been lucky enough to work on some stuff that people recognize, I've built tremendous friendships. People all over the country, all over the world, that are still in touch just because we ran into each other at Walkers. Mm-hmm. And they also honor if I say, "Look, I'm on a deadline. I would love to talk, but I can't talk to you now." Everybody leaves me alone. Mm-hmm. So, uh,
0: What's that feel like when you feel when you when you just sort of independently hear your movie referenced uh, in, during the holiday season?
1: It feels completely surreal. Yeah. For the same reason. Because it's, it's sort of like you love all your kids equally. And if one of your kids goes to Harvard and wins the Olympics, you don't love that kid any less than the kid that you know, lives in the shed. And, and we still get notes from eight-year-old. Every year, like in the in the mail. Really? Yeah. Dear God, walks in the, into what a What kind of notes they, have you gotten? Oh, it's always just like, thank you so much. Please give our love to Buddy. Please give our love to Santa. Please give our go- our love to Mr. Narwhal. Oh, notes like, like messages. Notes. Not. I bars. thought you meant script notes.
0: <laughs>
1: You're too cynical. <laughs> I, am. And some I am. Script notes on a movie that's been in the can for fifteen years. It's you know very cynical. It's too late for the reshoots.
0: All right. Well, the, the, uh, the other question that I, I definitely wanted to get at is that there was this interesting moment we came to in the last interview when I, we were talking about how you, how you're being a Christian and I asked how did you come to your faith and you said maybe another time when she isn't in the room and you indicated oh, my your daughter. daughter.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: And so I, I was hoping to ask you that question again.
1: Maybe we can circle back to that at the end. That's heavy duty. That's like, okay. that's very tough story to tell. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I might be able to tell it, but I need the plates cleared and maybe some pecan pie and some decaf coffee. Yeah, <laughs> okay,
0: and fair enough. So we ordered dinner. If you're ever in Walker's, I highly recommend the chicken pie hard. And as we ate, I tried not to worry over whether or not we'd get the story we'd come to hear. I was going to ask, you, were you gifted with this, uh, this gift of being able to zone everything out?
1: I, I guess so. A buddy of mine took a picture at, uh, next door at Girello at the other place when it was completely packed at the bar. He went across the other side and took a picture and it was arms coming across and people serving stuff and people drinking and chatting. And, <laughs> and through the jungle of it you can see me with my computer open and I'm head down and in deep concentration. Yeah. So yeah, I can totally vanish. But because it just happened to me organically, I've never seen it from outside myself. I, I don't know, I don't think of it as a gift, mm-hmm. but I am able to do it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do, do, is there other, another side of that coin? Do you ever drift off and your wife says to you, where are you right now? Never. I'm working on that. <laughs> never. That,
1: that, that's the thing that I, I don't have. What you're saying, and what a person is saying, is of import. Mm-hmm. And you're gonna learn something about yourself or how to help them, or how to grow, if you pay attention. Mm-hmm. And I may have said this because it's my favorite quote, but Frederick Buechner, this extraordinary novelist and essayist, who's essentially the American C.S. Lewis, he has a quote from years ago that has always resonated for me, which was, pay attention to your life. All moments are key moments. This this notion of we, we live in gaps or something... That, you know, a car crash happens, or a big moment. We get into that school, or we meet that girl. That that's life. It's, it's, it's not. Those are moments that may stand out, but they're stitched together and allowed to stand out on a platform that was built with all the moments that led up to that. Who we became, who we met, who we, kind of person we are. So it's deeply exciting to be alive every single moment. And I talk to my kids when they say boredom, or what, what time is it, or anything. It's like I want to invest in them. The knowledge that this world, this short visit on planet Earth, is so spectacular that you better have your eyes open.
0: Hmm. You with me now? I love that. Like, really with me? I hope so. Because that's when I was finally at the table, ready to listen to whatever came. And just like that, Todd ordered his decaf. Um,
1: Thank you. And I'd love a decaf coffee.
0: Uh, I'll have a decaf coffee also. Thank you.
1: You want to dare to ask me, if you're out of everything else, you want to dare circle back to the thing? Sure. So that everything else is done? Yeah. Okay. So the question was, again, you want to reframe it for me?
0: Yeah. Uh, the original question was just how did you come to your faith? What ha- And you s- seemed, there seemed to be a story.
1: Yeah, there's a story. So I grew up going to church. My parents were... Uh, deeply believing, lovely Christians, and they were doing it the right way. They weren't um, brittle or controlling. It was a very joyous household, and I wasn't rebelling against anything. Even as a teenager, I never rebel I wanted to hang out with my folks and my sisters. I I love my family. I was very close to them. Um, but I went off to college, and I started at Vanderbilt, and it it started it started to happen. at at Vanderbilt a little bit, and I didn't recognize what was happening, and then it happened completely. I transferred to Wheaton College over over Christmas, but back in 1983, that would have been the winter of 1983, nobody was talking about mental health. I mean, it just was not on the table. Medication, depression, Um, we had the state hospital near where I grew up. And that was Haverford State Hospital, and that's where the crazies were. And like, there was no version between healthy and nuts. There was no, no, nothing didn't exist. And when I, what I was going through, what I didn't recognize I was going through was, for some reason, the beginning of some deep sadness. It wasn't tied to anything, but I, um, I equated it. I equated this feeling of having been wrong about something. That was just my niggling thing. And my nightly ritual was to read the Bible. I used to read the Bible every night before I went to bed. And I remember it happened this fast. I was reading the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm reading, and I get this very strong sensation to say, how do we know, how do we know? How, how do we know Jesus said that? I mean, come on, how do we know? Mm, and I think I, I had been so naive or so unchallenging or my life had been so easy that I'd never asked a question anywhere near that before. Mm. So it sort of rattled me, and then quickly the question followed, which was how do we know there was even a Jesus? And I'm, I'm not kidding. I would say within half an hour, I had completely jettisoned what my life had been based on and completely kicked God out and was certain not only was it that there no God, but the people who loved me had lied to me. Mm. And it was a definitive, clear, trapdoor moment. I remember looking up in my dorm room and everything sort of looked different, like the world was different, because oh, there was yeah. no there there, mm-hmm. and there was no meaning, and there was no... So, mm-hmm. I know now <laughs> uh, that if you make a decision to reject or, or say no to the chance that there is a living God who, who cares about you, that your life is very specific, because if there is no meaning, then everything is meaningless. And I began a journey deep into meaninglessness, and I remember, you know, Wheaton where I, where I was going to college is a Christian college, and I was on the baseball team. All these sweet kids on the baseball team, loving kids, young, you know, young in their faith too, just trying to make it right, and here's me, for two years straight, explaining to them, you know, about Nietzsche, and about how they were all living a lie, and that, you know, it was a complete waste of time. and rattling their cages and they didn't have the defense mechanism. They didn't have apologetics. They didn't know enough about scripture or how to even have a conversation with me about it. So it was easy for me to win and pick on people. And of course, when you're angry and you're certain, then you can do a lot of violence, emotional violence. And so guess what happens when you do that? You're, you have, um, you have the certainty that you're right. But then at night, you realize the thing you're right about is, um, just a, a black hole in the event horizon mm-hmm. and so what happened for me is that 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 early sort of sadness opened up into a giant maw and um, I just felt completely apart and I remember going to the, the counselor at at school again counseling this is not a thing like she was there maybe two days a week mm-hmm. for an hour and a half like it was on a college campus with thousands of people. There was no sense that you would talk to anybody about anything. And I went into her, and I felt like I'd poured myself out to her, I felt like I'd really shared my heart. And at the end, I said, um, I really would like to come twice a week. And she laughed at me. And she said, oh, sweetheart, twice a week is for the suicidals. <laughs> so I knew that was not safe. Mm. I didn't feel like I could talk to my parents because even though I loved them, I was furious at them for tricking me. Mm. And in, in, in going slowly crazy, what started to happen was, I was un, unable to function on any other level except um, what I imagined was what say mitochondria, like some sort of cellular survival. Mm. So if I were having this conversation with you when I was 19, and you were sitting across from me we could be doing an interview we could be doing anything talking about girls talking about sports and you would be speaking i would hear absolutely nothing not a single word that you said and all i could hear in my head was the following you got to get it together you got to get it together you got to get it together you're going to get it together you're going to get it together you got to get it together just get it together get it together get it together like like in a speed mm. teletype that's all so I was failing at school because I couldn't hear. Yeah. And I had a physical sensation of my brain being peeled like a, like an orange where the, the I could see the peeling still at the bottom. But just the orange was exposed and I just felt completely unsafe. And um, there's only so long you can take that. So I knew that I had the uh, one choice and I needed to end my life. So we lived on uh, I lived on the sixth floor of my dorm, and there was one floor above and then a the roof and so I would go out there at night after everyone was asleep, and I would stand on the ledge of the roof and I would cl- put my arms out like this to my side and I would close my eyes and I would rock and I mean, I like to think, when I think back, that, that God had, had me by the belt, the whole time. I, I couldn't get the courage to actually, I mean, in my head, I remember, like, they're going to report it as he fell, because um, I couldn't get it, it, the courage to, to do this, I kept seeing my sister's faces and my parents' faces, and I was like, it's it's, it's okay if I fell, if I didn't jump out far, if I just fell. So. I would do this night after night after night. I would go down by the train station, um, wait for the train to come through, and put my feet up on the tracks. You know, there's the track, and then the bit of wood, the planks that come out, and I would stand on those planks, and I would do the same, except my hands were at my side, and I would just lean in and rock, and hope that the train would pull me in. And um, I wasn't talking to anybody about this. Miraculously, None of those events ended ended my life. So we went on, um, sophomore year we went on our baseball trip and my roommate was, was, and I've shared this a couple times before, um, his name's Steve Nagel, and I refer to him as Jesus with the crew cut. He was my roommate on the trip and he had a fantastic crew cut. And we, as part of our travel, were staying at a military base in Pensacola, Florida. And as I walked in, there were guns everywhere. And this was, uh, you know, 1984. It wasn't a sense of security. This was not like lockdown guns. There were just, there were like a 100 guns to choose from. And I knew in my heart that I finally had my chance. This was like, because I didn't have access to a gun another way. And I was not taking the opportunity that I had with these other things. I needed to do something definitive and so I wrote my um, and here come the sirens <laughs> they're finally coming to get me that's uh, well timed I, um, I wrote my suicide note to my parents and I, 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 uh, I still I still have it fortunately I have it instead of just my parents having it and I wrote it and it was about 2 in the morning and Steve stirred, and he was dark in the room. And he peeked up. He saw I had a small light on. He goes, "What? What are you? What are you doing?" And so I, I read it to him. So this is the first time that I've said to another human at this time what I'm, what's going on. So I read him this letter, and when I was done reading it, I said. Um, I'm going to do it, uh, I going to do it tonight, and this is where, you know, Jesus with a crew cut, he said, um, you're going to have to get by me first, hmm. and so I just knew that he was going to fall asleep, so I was going to outweighed him. And I stayed up, I stayed up, I watched him. He watched me, he's in his bed, and I'm like, I'm gonna, and, and finally, um, I must have fallen asleep, and I woke up about 4.35 in the morning. And Steve was sitting in front of the door with his, his legs out, fast asleep, but in front of the door. You got to get by me first. I, I told that to his uh, his wife on their wedding day, and because when I saw Steve and I gave a toast about having my life being, been been saved, um, both he and I sobbed, and she was like, "Why are you sobbing? What is this?" And then she pulled us in the back, and I told her, and she said, "I didn't think it was possible for me to love my my husband more." And. We can, we can be that person for somebody every day of our lives. Like, you got to get by me first.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that didn't uh, stop my thoughts, and it didn't make me less sad, but it did get me to call my parents and read them the note. This was hugely in- instructive. So I, I, I made it through that week, but I knew now I needed to share with my parents what I was going through. And I called them, and their reaction, I would say, is the beginning of, of my faith because I was 800 miles away and I just told them you know goodbye and I'm gonna do this thing their 19 year old son and they were totally calm completely calm. they didn't rush out and get me they didn't speak into my panic and they just said Todd we love you so much and your sisters love you and um, this is gonna end we don't know when we don't know how you, you may not feel God, but He's there with you. And you're, you're going to make it. And when you're telling yourself you're not going to make it for two years, and then the people that you love actually say you're going to make it, you, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't land as believable, but it lands. And I knew their faith was in Christ, so this didn't make any sense to me. Like All my ache was because there was no love in the world. And yet here was this love. And um, the probably another year and a half went by, and I came home to my apartment, and I saw on my bookshelf my childhood Bible, the, the living Bible that I'd read when I was a kid. It was all weathered, and it was just sitting there in the books, and I got ferociously angry. And I took mm. it out. And I went over and I stood over the trash can and I was going to throw it away because I, I just was tired of being lied to. And I'm standing over the trash can and I'm thinking, can you throw a Bible in the trash? <laughs> like, is, it, is that, even if there's no meaning in the world, can you throw a Bible in the trash? And I wasn't able to throw it in the trash, so I took it and I put it back on the bookshelf. And for the next week, every night I came home and I'd look over, I'd see it, I'd be like, and then I would go to bed, (laughs) and finally, after a week of that, I pulled it out, I sat down, So now I was about 21, and I put it on my lap and I was holding it and gripping it like this, trying to crush it. And I said my first prayer in three years, and I said, "Um, if I open this, it better be true. It, be- it, it better be in here. Because otherwise, I'm <laughs> threatening to knock out God, the God mm-hmm. I didn't believe in. And um, I opened it. And what I have found in the intervening 32 years is that it's been more true than anything else in my life. And for me, faith is an ongoing investigation, it is not an island. That you get dropped off on every human being no matter what they believe is all in the water together some of us are surfing some of us are drowning some of us are walking on water we're all in the human experience but the more i've spent time investigating the person of jesus the more life has made sense to me the more i've wanted to love and serve and confess, and be forgiven, and start over, and that desire has only grown, it's never diminished. So people that, that don't know about my faith, they are often ask me, you know, why are you so happy? Why are you? And that, the reason I'm so happy is because I'm alive, and I'm spectacularly saved, and I know by whom I know by whom and I know when I look at my wife and kids for what purpose. And everything else is, is gravy. So there's an amazing story, of, I believe it's the Navajos. But there's a, a Native American tribe that on the 12th birthday of a, a boy, they, they take their 12-year-old uh, out, out into the woods on a new moon and they tie him to a tree. And they leave him alone with the sounds and the darkness and the you know the critters and the wolves and everything around all night and at dawn they they cut him they cut him free but when they cut him free it is revealed to him that his father has been sitting next to him the entire night mm-hmm. and that's how I think the world works I think there's a lot of Saturdays after the crucifixion, there's a lot of dark nights for a, a child tied up to a tree. There's a lot of mystery and questions and agony. But when the dawn comes, when Sunday comes, the tomb is empty, your father is sitting beside you, and you're never going to be alone. You're perfectly loved, and you always have been. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm. Thanks for sharing. that. Thank you.
1: I think that's the third just the third time I've ever told this story.
2: I, I mean I'm assuming that you know because we're we have microphones and everything so that this is a shareable.
1: Oh yeah story. yeah I mean it's not I mean look we think it when, will
2: help a lot of people <laughs> I do.
1: Every every time I've shared it, I've I've shared it two other times publicly. And um, look, the reason to make art, the reason to write something down is the thing that happened to us when we were kids, when we first read, whether it was Guy de Maupassant or it was uh, Salinger or John Irving or Shakespeare, is to see on the page or in a painting that we're not alone. Mm -hmm. So I'll I'll never stop sharing the fact that
0: we're not alone. Uh, The conversation meandered on for a while longer and we got into talking about Christmas, and more specifically, church on Christmas. Those were all, the nighttime Christmas Eve services were always my favorite. Magical. Yeah. Yeah.
1: My growing up church was And like there, that. somebody would
0: always bring the spiced uh, cider, mm-hmm. and, and there would be that smell. Mm-hmm. And, and then Brannon, I really love my friend because he really knows how to put things into perspective at exactly the right time.
2: Whenever you think about Midnight Mass, yeah. my, my only memory is when I was 18, 19, I was the crucifer in the Episcopal church service, and it's the first time I've ever passed out.
1: Oh no. Yeah, oh
2: it was really dramatic. I passed out, oh, knocked the concrete, over. the a...
1: it's always, the, the steps are so harsh, there's no well, gentle I... Episcopalian church service. I was, I was. <laughs> no, it's all jagged and pews and altars. That
0: and... is a very observational point. Oh my goodness, <laughs> like the ouchiest of all
1: churches. And
2: I bounced off so many things on the way down. Uh, I, uh, no, there was so many, so many mishaps. But uh, I'll just I'll, I'll cut to the just one detail of the whole thing is that on my way down, I don't remember this, but I took out a giant Eucharist candle I've been burning <laughs> all day, oh. all day. And, uh, and I don't remember what happened. I, woke, I, I didn't realize until later, uh, like a few minutes later, I'm in the back in the vestry somewhere and my head is in the lap of this uh, uh, other uh, acolyte, uh, this girl that I, I liked, nice. uh, which is nice to come to sort of to that. And she's sponging up my face, and I can't feel the left side of my face. Wow. I'm like, oh my god, and I'm paralyzed or whatever, and I'm like, ah, ah, just ah. like plastic. And then, finally, Edge, like, <laughs> peel, I had the wax, just, <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> wow. Oh, my god. Yeah. All over your face. Phantom yeah. of the
1: Opera. Yes.
0: Outside Walker's that night, it was raining again. Darren and I huddled under our umbrella and Brandon his. We walked the sidewalks, not saying much of anything, just listening to the puddles crash beside us like discordant waves. I guess we were all thinking about the story that Todd had told us, feeling it.
2: Bye. Bye bye. That was great. That was a really At the
0: corner, we stopped to say goodbye to Brandon. Merry
2: Christmas, man. Merry Christmas.
0: Realizing we wouldn't be seeing each other again until the new year. Always too long. And then we went home. And when we got there, my wife made the most incredible suggestion. We sat down on the couch with our dogs and a couple of eggnogs and we watched our favorite okay. Christmas movie. <clears throat> okay, you ready? <laughs> yeah. Here we go.
1: best way to spread, way to spread Christmas, spread. Christmas <laughs> cheer is <laughs> to be loud for all wow. to hear. Why
2: don't you just say it? I'm the worst toy maker in the world. I'm a cotton headed ninny muggins.
0: <laughs> 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 someone need a hug. <laughs> <laughs> hey! Have you seen these toilets? They're ginormous! <laughs> and now as I sit here recording this voiceover several weeks before you're going to hear it. I'm in a temporary apartment in Toronto. I miss my wife terribly. I miss my best friend. I miss my mom. But I know this is temporary. You see, it's during the holidays we huddle inside with our families and our loved ones, trying to warm each other, as much spiritually as physically. Our care for one another as much as our presence reminds us that we are not alone. Christmas movies are powerful because they are able to do this same thing on a global scale that considers our link to all people through our very humanity. If you're listening to this and you feel alone, it doesn't matter if you're with people or not, proximity does not dictate how we feel. If you feel alone and that there is no end in sight, or if you feel life is hopeless, Let me assure you that feeling is a lie. It has nothing to do with you. And I urge you to call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Someone is always available to talk, even on Christmas. Especially on Christmas because we're all in this together. The Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Brandon Edgens and myself, Anson Mount. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Special thanks to Diane Johnston, Remy Komarniki, Dara Mount, and Walker's Bar and Restaurant in New York City. If you're ever in New York, it's at the corner of Moore and Varick streets down in Tribeca. Go check it out. And we'd also like to extend our deepest gratitude to Todd Komarnicki for sharing his entire self with us. We were, and remain, deeply touched by his generosity. Happy holidays, everyone.